we're going to have, just like last week, a few different texts, but if you want to open uh, to one, the longest one is James 5, 16 through 20. There we go. So we're in this series that we do at the beginning of every year where we focus around sort of our, what we call our communal spiritual disciplines, our disciple-making environments, of, of gathering as a church, of committing to grow as disciples, to, to give in service and resources, and to go as those who have been sent by the gospel of Jesus. And we take this time each year to help us kind of revisit why we do what we do. So we're, we're very cool. So we're going to say something that will sound like out of, we're speaking out of two sides of our mouth sometimes. So we're going to do things and we're going to say trust the process. Like trust that you're growing as you engage in this, even when it doesn't feel like it. But on the other side, we want to have an open community where you can distrust the process, if that makes sense. And all I mean by that is not like a distrusting posture, but like you can say, why do we do this? Like, that's okay. You can say your doubts out loud. You can bring your questions. And so one of the reasons we have this is just to say, hey, there's some things we do as a church. Particularly, we have this Sunday gathering. Last week we talked about why do we even do that? We, we, we encourage people to engage in what is personal communion or depending on what faith tradition you're from, a Lectio Divina if you're from a fancy one or a good old quiet time if you're not from one, you know? And then there's our fight clubs, which, you know, that might sound scary to you. First rule, don't tell anybody in here. I'm just saying it out loud. Is This is where groups of men, groups of ladies come together to encourage one another with the gospel as they seek to fight sin and suffering and Satan in this world. And then we have our missional communities. So each of these weeks we'll be talking about these from different angles. This morning we'll focus on our personal communion and fight clubs and what that means. And if you're not a part of our church and you're just here, I think this will still be relevant for you. One of the big emphasis we're having in this series is focusing on this theme of locating ourselves. And so sort of our controlling illustration is you can get a gym membership but if you get a gym membership and all you do is go sit on a chair in that gym guess what you're probably not going to get in shape and sometimes that's how we can think of life yeah chucks right joe that'd be nice right there are certain gyms at least they used to who had like pizza tuesday nights or whatever that's my kind of gym right <laughs> no judgment uh and so but we want to grow, right? And some of us, when it comes to the environment, disciple-making environments we have as churches or as Christians, we kind of, if we're honest, sometimes can just show up and sit there and then be like, oh, I didn't grow, so I guess that's not meaningful. But we're only going to grow if we actually participate, if we're actually intentional. So last week we talked about what does that look like in our Sunday gathering. And how can we come not as consumers who just sit and receive, but as participants who are shaped in an embodied time of gathered worship. And this week we're going to be looking from some different angles at our personal communion, quiet time, uh, whatever, all different ways to say that, and our fight clubs. Alrighty, here we go. So we've got some text we're bouncing off of. If you're new here, usually we're going through a book of the Bible verse by verse, but in this series it'll be more topical. If somebody's got questions about that, we can talk more later. So I'm going to read some of these from the screen and some of them from, from directly from the text. Here we go, Luke 5, 15 and 16. But now even more the report about him, that is Jesus, went abroad, and great crowds gathered to heal him, 
and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Mark 9, 2-3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them high up a, up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew 26, 36-38. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And that's James and John again. Verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. James 5, 16 to 20. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." Then lastly, Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gifts of grace. We thank you for the practices that you've given us and the church that we might grow in your grace. We express now that we are totally dependent on that grace to grow. And we ask that you would meet us even now as we spend time in your word. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to take what is true and to pierce to the depths of our intentions, our motives, our desires, our loves, so that we might be shaped into the way of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. I could always ace my vocabulary quizzes in high school, but I didn't have to really study. I don't know why, but uh, thankfully, in one way, God gave me a brain, didn't in a lot of other ways, that if I just had 20 minutes, maybe even 10, before that Friday morning vocabulary test, I could just sit there and rep those verses and then pass that test. But if you would have came to me later in that day and said, tell me what whatever a fancy vocabulary word is, I would have not been able to tell you the answer to that. Because my engagement with that exercise was totally at the level of my head. <laughs> there was no heart involved. There was no imagination. There was no marination. There was no, what we might say, affectation. There were no feelings. There were no connection. And everybody might say, yeah, that's great. I do that too. But what if I was a heart surgeon? Now, they probably wouldn't let me go through with it if I was that, but just go with me. Hopefully, people wouldn't. What if I just rushed through, learned the facts, and did what I was supposed to do, and they're like, you're good to go. And then you show up with a heart that needs fixed, and I'm like, oh, 
Let me get out my textbook. I don't know about you, and I've never had heart surgery, but I don't want any doctor looking at a textbook while they're working on me, whatever it is, right? I want to know that they have actually did the work, that they put their heart into it, that they put their hands into it. In many ways, I don't want them to be thinking. I want them to be doing. And as we think about these disciplines of personal communion, of time alone with God, of engaging together in relationships where we seek to shape each other through relationships of trust and environment of grace, we have got to ask ourselves, are we treating that like a test environment? Or are we in treating it like an environment where we are dealing with the heart? Another way to say this is, have we lost the wonder of what it means to be a people who are invited to commune with God alone? That God longs for us, welcomes for us, and has paid for us to enter into the deepest, most intimate communion with Him. Because He loves us. He wants us not to just learn facts. He wants us to experience freedom. When Jesus speaks about the truth, He doesn't say the truth will help you pass the test. He says you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So I've got a question for us. Just like I'd say, we said in some ways about last week, when you come to time alone with God, do you come for freedom? Do you come to learn and engage with the God of all glory, of all creation, who says, I want you to set you free. I want you to flourish. I want you to experience fulfillment even in this broken world. When you step in, whether you're in a fight club or you're in some other group in some other church in some other environment, forget the titles. When you step into that area, do you step into that for freedom? For flourishing? For the fulfillment that only God can bring through the gospel? We have to locate ourselves in the disconnections that we have if we want to grow. And I believe, as we say again and again, God does not want to grow us through a motivation of guilt, shame, and fear, but of grace and of glory and of love. And we've got to learn what it looks like to be shaped by that love so that our loves can be shaped. And all through the story of God, God is calling His people to these practices of communion with Him alone, of communion with Him with others. But one of the prophets, or many of the prophets, have one refrain that's repeated is this people do these things, but their heart is far from me. So that's just the purpose today. It's the purpose each of these weeks to locate are you just doing these things, or is your heart there? And we all go through different seasons, but we want to learn what it looks like to actually show up in every season seeking the Lord whether it be in our personal communion, our fight clubs, our relationships of discipleship, if we want to grow. So how can we do that? How can we learn to show up in these disciple-making environments with our hearts if we're to grow as disciples in our habits? The first thing we need to do, and this is going to be behind the text, but I'm going to show you how it's, it's, it's here implicitly, is we've got to locate the unconscious discipleship that's taking place in our life. The unintentional or unconscious and maybe we have some alternative personal communions, some alternative quiet times 
and some alternative fight clubs, some alternative relationships that are shaping us that are doing more work on what actually puts the desires in our heart into action than what we might know. There is a biblical assumption of unintentional discipleship. We might say it this way. Everybody in this world is being discipled. Everybody is a disciple. The question is just what's discipling you? Who's discipling you? Who's got your ear? Who's got your time? Who's got your focus? And above all, who has your heart? Who has your desires? Who has your loves? And therefore, who is shaping your habits? Luke 5, 15 and 16. We'll be jumping around a little bit here, but uh, just stay with me. It says that Jesus is doing all these awesome things, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Why does Jesus do this? Well, in a sense, you could say if anybody knew what it was like to live in a constant state of prayer, in a constant state of relationship with the Father, it would be Jesus. And yet even Jesus says, I'm going to get along with the Lord. Right? So unless we're more spiritual than Jesus, like I really don't need time set aside to be alone with God because all of life is worship. All of life is my quiet time. All right, you just out spiritualized Jesus. Great job, right? I don't mean to sound like it's sarcastic. But anyway, I've did that before. So I didn't plan to say this. When I was early on pastoring, I'm like, man, I'm preparing a sermon. That's my devotion. All right? It wasn't, and it had disastrous effects on my life and heart, just so everybody knows it. Not try to be legalistic. Jesus was doing great things, and he got away. Why did he get away to be alone with the Father? It's because Jesus lived in a life where he was under spiritual attack. Jesus will go to the Father even at the end in the garden. We didn't read those verses and he will pray these prayers and he will bring his heart into the Father's presence. He'll say in John chapter 5, I only do what the Father tells me to do. We think of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and we might think that was a one-time thing. But if you read just a chapter earlier in Luke, it says that the devil left him until an opportune time. Jesus' wilderness temptation was not the only time that he was tempted by the enemy. Jesus knew that he lived in a world, and although he was the perfect human, he was human, he was tempted in all ways that we are, he knew there was an unintentional discipleship pressing in on him. In Mark 9, the next two passages, 2 and 3, in Matthew 26 through 38, we see Jesus... He's got his three, right? Peter, James, and John. He's got his 12. He's got his large gatherings. And he's got his three. He gets away with. And why does he do that? He gets away with them to show him, at least in these two texts, and we could go to others, his glory and the transfiguration, but also he asked that they would watch with him. He's, he's facing the enemy. He's facing temptation there's an unintentional discipleship, and he, even Jesus, is saying, I need some other people in this with me. In James 5, 16 through 20, we're called to confess our sins to one another. But we live in a world that would tell us, well, there really is no such thing as sin. Or we live in a world that tells us your sin is so bad sometimes that you don't deserve to be forgiven, you deserve to be discarded. 
There's an unintentional discipleship around confession and healing and prayer that all of us are being fed. And then in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, what's behind this? Take time to exhort one another in personal relationships. Why? Because an evil, unbelieving heart could be down the road. You see, discipleship is not an option. We are all being discipled. Now, this is going to date, be dated a little bit, what I want to read here from a book. One of the worst things I hate to do is to listen to people read from a book. So I'm going to make you do it. All right. I love you. Anyway, I used to have a friend. I, we don't have time for this. But it was so great. He was really excited about learning the gospel and the scriptures. But he would call me on the phone and he would want to read to me from books. It was really nice and it was really not fun. But anyway, but I wish I was so excited about learning about God that I was calling people on the phone and saying, hey, listen to this chapter. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm going to do that to you a little bit right now. So this is a description of a place of worship. This is dated, but we'll, we'll, you can go there. You're all smart. He says, I would like to invite you for a tour of one of the most important religious sites in our metropolitan area. It's the kind of place that may be familiar to you, but my task is to invite you to see it with new eyes. As we're still off at a distance, I want you to notice the sheer popularity of the site as indicated by the colorful sea of parking around the building. The site is throbbing with pilgrims every day of the week as thousands and thousands make the pilgrimage. In order to provide an hospitable environment and absorb the daily influx of the faithful, the site provides an ocean of parking. But the monotony of black tarmac is covered by dots of color from cars and SUVs lined up row by row, patiently waiting as the pilgrims devote themselves to the rituals inside. Inside, the parking lot constitutes a kind of moat around the building, since there are no sidewalks that lead to the site. We begin to wind our way toward the building that sprawls in both directions and seems to be rising from the horizon, a dazzling array of glass and concrete with recognizable ornamentation. The architecture of the building has a recognizable cold that makes us feel at home in any city. The large glass atriums at the entrances are framed by banners and flags. Familiar text and symbols on the exterior walls help foreign faithful to quickly and easily identify what's inside. And the sprawling layout of the building is anchored by large pavilions or sanctuaries akin to the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. We come to one of several grandiose entries to the building, channeling us through a colonnade of chromed arches to the towering glass face with doors lining its base. As we enter this space, we are ushered into a narthex of sorts intended for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers. There is a large map, kind of worship aid, to give the novice an orientation to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observance of the pilgrims. The design of the interior is inviting to an almost excessive degree, sucking us into the enclosed interior spaces with windows on the ceiling open to the sky, but none of the walls open to the surrounding moat. This conveys a sense of vertical and transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor and distractions of the horizontal mundane world. This architectural mode of enclosure and enfolding offers a feeling of retreat and escape 
The worship space is very much governed by a kind of liturgical festival calendar, various draped in the colors, symbols, and images of an unending litany of holidays and festivals to which new ones are regularly added since the establishment of each new festival translates into greater numbers of pilgrims joining the processions into this sanctuary and engaging in worship. The layout of this temple has architectural echoes that hark back to medieval cathedrals, mammoth religious spaces that can absorb all kinds of different religious activities all at once. And so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplations, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. As we wonder, we'll be struck by the rich iconography. How do you say that? Thank you. There we go. I've read this before. That lines the walls and interior spaces. Here is an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that inspires us to be imitators of these exemplars. Here I underline this one. These statues and icons embody for us concrete images of the good life. If I could look like that, if I could dress like that, the good life. Here is a religious proclamation that does not traffic in abstracted ideas or doctrines, but rather offers to us the imagination pictures and statutes and moving images offering embodied pictures of the redeemed that invite us to imagine ourselves in their shoes. These same icons of the good life are found in such temples across the country and around the world. I'm going to skip down a little bit. This temple, like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich embodied visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires and compels us to come not with dire moralisms, but rather with an envisioned invitation to share the good life. Sometimes we will enter cautiously, curiously, tentatively making our way through this maze within the maze, having a vague sense of need, but unsure how it will be fulfilled. And having our sense of need, we come looking, not sure what for, but expectant, knowing that what we need must be there. And after we've spent time focused and searching in what the faithful call the racks, With our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar, which is the consummation of worship. Behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. This is a religion of a transaction, of exchange and communion. And we make our sacrifice, leave our donation, but in return receive something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints in the season. Released by the priest with a benediction, we make our way out of the chapel in a kind of denouement not necessary to leave the temple, but rather to continue and be invited into another chapel. For who could resist the tangible realities of the good life so abundantly and and invitingly offered? So you should probably know what I'm talking about. The mall. (laughs) The reason I said this is dated is because does anybody even go to the mall anymore? I don't know. Not Bradley Square Mall. So the point of me reading all that is nobody in here probably thinks of shopping like that. But here's the kicker. It doesn't matter if you think about something in a certain way. It's shaping you. Nobody in here thinks that you have a quiet time in your bed every morning that looks like this. 
And it's shaping us. You're starting off your day saying, this, receiving these images, receiving these pictures, engaged in these comparisons, and it's shaping you. And it's shaping me. I'm not telling you not to do it. I'm just saying we've got to be aware. We're watching things on, on TV. That's like the mall, right? You're watching stuff on something. We read our Bible verses, right? Overachievers. We read our Bible verses for the day. And then we go watch these shows on repeat. And we don't realize they're giving us a vision of what the good life is. And we wonder why we don't change. And we're tempted to think, well, this Bible stuff, prayer stuff, doesn't really work. But man, I can't wait till that new episode drops. And we start imagining ourselves, whether we say it out loud or not, man, I wish I could be like that person. Wouldn't it be nice to really be able to let somebody have it? Or wouldn't it be nice to really be able to, to, to own those things that they own? And again, not, not saying go burn your TV. Probably worst things that could happen. And I'm in the middle of all this too. Just ask my family. It shapes us. And here, I'll, I'll really hold close to my corn. You spend five, four, three to five nights of your week organizing your schedule around sports. We're, I'm not going to stop having my kids play sports. But man, we're all clueless if we don't think that's shaping the vision of what we think this is the good life. This is the good life. And sometimes we've forgotten what Jesus knew, the disciples knew, and the early church knew, is we are living in a world, in our flesh, the world and the devil, that is discipling us all the time. And a simply fact-driven version of communion with God and with others cannot hold up to that. So we need to locate ourselves. What are your unintentional personal communions? I don't know. Is it social media? Is it Facebook Marketplace? Is it a podcast? Is it playlist? I'm not telling you to stop. Just be aware. What actually are you meditating on that's shaping how you view what the good life is? Think of our six questions we use, and we encourage people to use in personal communion and fight club. What does this medium, this mode, this ritual in my life, what is it saying? What is it saying? This is what you this is this is what I need, this is what you do. What is it saying about who God is? What is it telling you is broken in the world that needs to be fixed? What is it telling you that if you had this, you would have a little redemption in your life? What is the vision it has given you? What are the habits it's producing? And by habits, I mean distinct from practices. Practices are the things we do. These are our practices, right? We all have a life of practices. Now, what is this, the habits or what's coming second nature to me now? 
Because guess what? That's what discipleship is all about, is creating us into certain kinds of people. So what kind of person is this wanting me to be? We need a theology and a teaching, a vision of discipleship that isn't just the practices, but understanding the practices that we're engaged in. All right, next. Not just locating the unintentional or unconscious discipleship that's going on in our life. Oh, and just so, so this is all synced up, the alternative fight clubs, right? So you got the, the alternative personal communion. Now, now think, oh, I can't wait to get together with these few other people and talk about whatever that is, right? And guess what? No, nobody's having to like motivate you to do that because it's where your heart is, right? Man, I, I can't wait to talk to so-and-so who watches that same show as me, see what they thought about that last episode. Or I can't wait to talk to so-and-so about this new uh, blow-up on Twitter, this new controversy. I can't wait to talk to so-and-so about what happened in college football last week or college basketball. Or I can't wait to talk to so-and-so about this new book. Again, none of those things are bad things. Just realize. Just don't go blindly into it. All right, the next thing, we've got to locate ourselves not only in the unconscious discipleship, but we've got to locate ourselves in the intentional spaces of personal communion and fight club or relationships with others to grow. This is what Jesus is doing. Back to Luke 5, 15, and 16. Jesus made it a discipline. This is not the only text that we read that he did this. He regularly retreated to be alone with the Father. That's what he did. He did that against the pull of the world. This is not just some sort of uh, religious legalism, right? This is, this is discipleship of Jesus. If he did it, let's do it. Jesus got away in the Mark passage, the Matthew passage, others. Jesus had another three that he would get away with and he would say, I want to show you my glory, right? And I want us to watch together against temptation. If you're like, what are y'all trying to do in fight clubs? We want to behold the glory of Christ in the face of temptation, sin and suffering and Satan. That's what we want to do. It looks like what we saw in James 5, 16 through 20. We want to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. That takes a certain level of self-awareness to be able to bring yourself to God and bring yourself to others. Maybe that's more what our personal communion should be about, is letting God's word shine the light on our hearts so that we grow in awareness, like what do I need to bring to you, God? And now what do I need to bring to others? As, as Protestants and evangelicals, we, we sometimes maybe feel funny when we talk about a spiritual discipline of confession. Noah wrote a great paper on this. Good job, Noah. Not to embarrass him. He did. But uh, confession is, is biblical. We should be regularly confessing our sins to one another. Not to me as a priest, but we are a priesthood of believers. We, should, we need a space to confess our sins together to one another and to pray for one another that we might be healed. And then Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, we need a space to exhort one another. That none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These practices are rooted in the scriptures. And they're rooted in that not merely as something that we should just have to do. But 
again, that want to shape us. That means if we're going to engage in these disciple-making environments in ways that are just as shaping as the mall, social media, and all these other things, sports, uh, that we are just living in and don't realize, is that we've got to bring more to them than just our heads. We've got to bring our hearts. We've got to bring our whole selves. So uh, somebody got hurt in my high school football team, and so I got to play, right? So I'm going to say that at the right. That's the only way. Got hurt. Solomon Donay. Thankfully, got hurt, so I got to play. And my, my coach did, he really had a hard time with me. I probably used other illustrations. But one of the things that he did, and he knew he had to do with me, is, is just these drills over and over again. And with me, it was like, do it again, do it again. And it just got so boring, and it got so old. But his mantra for me was, especially, I don't want you to think. <laughs> When you start thinking, that's when everything goes wrong. I want you to react. So I'm going to drill you, and it's going to be boring, and it's going to be monotonous at times. But I'm training you that when you get out of there in that game, that you don't start thinking. You just do. You react. This is, this is in, a, in a crude form, and it's not a perfect analogy. The purpose of our personal communion along with God, bringing our hearts to Him, retreating to be alone, the, one of the big purposes of our fight clubs, coming together and learning to help have other people help us see that, is so now that we can go out and into our lives, into the game of the everyday life, and we grow as certain kinds of people who react in certain kinds of situations. I remember one time when I, uh, I was meeting with one of our fight club leaders, and this was really, really drilled home to me, is like certain, it, it was feeling stale, it was feeling monotonous, and people didn't seem to be growing. And there was like a light bulb that went on in this conversation that people were not thinking about answering those questions in a way that would be brought into when they were facing certain late-night temptations. Like there was a breakdown of like, who is God right now? What has God done and given me in Jesus? What is the gospel? Who am I? You see, we're not engaging in these disciplines, whether a personal communion and fight club, to just get something done, to just check something off the list. We're training. First Timothy, it says that, that we are to train ourselves for godliness. We need to think of these times as times that are meaningful in and of themselves to commune with God and others, but for the sake of discipleship, they're also more than that. So we've got to locate ourselves. When we show up in our time of personal communion, are we really showing up? Are we just bringing our heads to God? Or are we also bringing our hearts? Now this has had to change for me over the years. And uh, I forgot to bring it. I was going to bring my journal and a chair and a table and sit here and Looked like I was doing something creative. But anyway, so imagine me sitting here with my journal. I was going to set the lamp here. Anyway, I just remembered that right now. So a lot of my life, what I would have did is I would have sat down with my Bible study, and I would have said, okay, or my Bible reading plan, and I would have said, okay, today I'm reading, say, Genesis 1, John 1, whatever. I read the chapter, and then I pray. 
and go on. And that's great. That's a great way to start. But as my times went on, personal communion with God is not so much about discipline as it's about like desperation. So as I've got older, I've become more aware of my need and stupidity and ignorance and brokenness. And so now what it looks like is this, take it or leave it, is, is sitting down at my place and I set a timer for three to five minutes just to be still. Stillness, and silence, and solitude. If you need three S's there. I want to engage in them. I just want to get present. I want to pay attention to my body because I know that I'm a religious performer and I can get in and out of that and feel good because I did that. And then next is what I'm going to do is I'm going to check in with my feelings or my heart before the Lord to see if there's anything that's keeping me from being present. Because I'm not interacting with merely a book. I'm actually wanting to have communion with God. And you know it's hard to be present with people if our minds are somewhere else. Well, same with God, right? So I'm going to take, and it, there's no telling how long this could take. It can take one minute some days and ten minutes another. Is I'm just going to take our little resource of those emotion cards, and I'm going to kind of say, here's where I'm at, God. It's hard for me to be present here because I'm so afraid of, of this conversation I'm going to have to have. It's so hard for me to be present here because I'm, this financial reality is on my mind. or I'm, Just whatever it is, you got me. And I'm, I'm journaling that. And it's just amazing. Now, now I'm ready to hear from God. And that's where I'll come and read whatever the reading plan I'm going through. Sometimes it's my own. Sometimes it's conjunction with our fight club. And I'll walk through those six questions, doing those reps, right? Just reminding myself, because so, we're so prone to legalism. We want to go right from what God's saying to what, what should I do and miss the gospel. And then after that, I will take a time to pray that back through God, through a prayer template like the Lord's Prayer or the Acts Acrostic, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. So I don't know how that, what that might look like for you, but it's worth figuring out. How do I show up before God with the same intentionality that I do in some of these other spaces? How do I show up to be shaped, not just in my head, but my heart? How does it change my imagination? How does it shape what I believe the good life is? What kind of person that I'm called to be and how God gives me all that in Christ? When it comes to our fight clubs or your relationships, again, if you're not in one, close relationships where you seek to shape one another by the gospel, again, we can just show up or we can really show up. Are we entering purposefully? So depending on what your fight club is or where you're engaged, you know, do you, do you take time to read whatever it is beforehand if that's a part of your structure? Everyone's different, so it may not be. Or when you're there, are you actually there in the reading? Do you come ready to share your heart? Again, go to the gym and sit on the chair. You're not going to grow, right? Do you think before you show up, hey, I need to bring this to the group. I need to take up some space. And if there's no time for you, are you willing to say, hey, next time, it's my turn. I got to bring it. Or we need to meet again, or can I get on the phone with somebody? Do you bring yourself? 
When people share, do you listen? Now, I don't think this should be controversial, but maybe it is. It's probably just a good thing, unless there's some potential emergency in your life, to just put your phone up, right? Just, just put it up, right? The world will go on. You know, there's, there's nothing that makes people feel like you don't really want to listen to me than if they're having a conversation with someone else while they're having a conversation with you. Right? So for that hour to that hour and a half, again, if, if, if it's an emergency, that's fine. But just don't be doing something else. Be there. And then leave to love. I'd say so much about that, but just ask yourself, what does this look like for me? To be present before the Lord and be present with others in these ways that Jesus showed us. And our last point that always leads us to the Lord's table is the most important thing in all this is we've got to locate Jesus there. I mean, if, if, if Jesus is not there discipling us, then, then what are we doing? Right? There's a sense in which we disciple one another, but ultimately we're all being discipled by Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. Again, Jesus went alone to be with the Father. There was, this, there was a posture of dependence. Jesus brought the three along with him. Can you, if anybody, again, didn't need a quiet time, and if anybody didn't need a few other people to watch and pray with him, it'd probably be Jesus. But even Jesus said, hey, I want you to come here with me and watch and pray. Now, the knuckleheads all went to sleep over and over again. So... It's not always based on the quality, right? We lean in with Jesus. To confess our sins means we need our Savior. To face sinful, unbelieving hearts means we need a deliverer. We've got to get the gospel in our bones. That's the purpose of these things, but the these environments won't shape us by the gospel if it's the gospel that doesn't lead us there. I've had a couple meetings with a couple people in our church where we had to have kind of a serious conversation of sorts, and they expressed it this way. They said, I kind of felt like I was being called in the principal's office. Now, that, that's kind of funny because I'll just go ahead and give you a heads up. If I'm having to have a conversation with you, I'm more anxious than you are probably. You can use that against me if you want to. And I'm the one who has an adverse relationship to authority figures in my story. God's sense of humor. Here I am. What's behind that? Probably a lot, and there's unique in ways, but unique for everyone. But I wonder how many times maybe that's how we feel like in terms of meeting with God and meeting with others. Like, here I go into God's presence all these other things that are natural disciplines, I know they're going to give me life. But here we go, God, just show me what I did wrong again. Here I come to some others, just make me feel guilty. You know, accountability, yay. That's a, that's a gospel issue. If the first thing that we don't think of when we think of spending time with God is that father of the prodigal son running to us, then we've got the wrong image in our head. That's what he's wanting every day with us. He's wanting to run to us, to love us, 
to remind us that yes, we have sinned, but we are His sons and daughters and He loves us. When we come together with other people, we want that type of environment of grace. We don't want it to be, man, I'm, life, I'm doing horrible. I, first thing I got to do is get it together a little bit. No, the, the logic of the gospel is our community is I'm, I'm doing horrible. I'm running to God because he's running to me and I'm running to others. Jesus didn't die for our sins, tear the veil and intercede for us to view God's presence like the principal office. The author of Hebrews, just one chapter after chapter 3, says it this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, that's what the, we want the word to do, alone and together. That sounds pretty intimidating, doesn't it? Next verse. I didn't put this together. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help you in the time of need. There's the bow, the tide on all this. We want the word of God in our personal communion and in our fight clubs to expose our hearts. And then because of Jesus, we want to run together to the grace of God and with confidence, not shame or guilt or fear, but with confidence, draw near and receive mercy in time of need. We're going to have to locate ourselves to do that. But as we locate ourselves, we find the grace of God. And we find lives not just filled with facts, like memorizing a test, but with the freedom to have our hearts changed and to help others experience it as well. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you now for the table that we come to where we will again taste and see that you gave yourself so that we might have communion with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.